This is the EWN Podcast Network. Are you ready to live your life by your rules? Need some inspiration? Welcome to First Class Life, Redefining Success, the podcast that brings you interviews with people who have had their life path challenged and have redefined what success and a first-class life really means to them with tales of roads taken, detours explored, turning points, and transformation. Here is your host, First Class Life mentor, Kate Fessler. Welcome to First Class Life, Redefining Success. I'm your host, Kate Fessler, and today my guest is Nicole Bandes. Recognized for out, her outstanding ability to understand and break down information, improve systems, and shift mindsets, Nicole is the founder and CEO of Virtual A-Team, a virtual services and online business management agency. Nicole and her team help overwhelmed solopreneurs find more time for what matters most. Nicole has spent nearly 20 years in the coaching and speaking world and began to understand that the most powerful way she could help her fellow solopreneurs was to share with them access to to her team and her virtual team building skills. Nicole has been a featured expert in Inc. Magazine, Fast Company, Huffington Post, USA Today, and many more. Welcome, Nicole. Hi, Kate. How are you? I am very well. And yourself? Good, good. Awesome. Beautiful day here. Uh, We're getting cool weather finally, and uh, I'm just loving it. Ah, beautiful fall. Yes. So let's start at the beginning. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, gosh. Um, I, uh, it's actually comical to think of now, but when I was a kid, one of the things that really stood out to me is I wanted to be the first female president of the United States. Totally not thinking about what that looked like today, but I quickly realized um, at some point that I didn't know that I had it in me to to really kind of stand up and and of course this was back in the late seventies, um, so politics was very different then. But even then, I looked at it and said, I don't know if I can take all the stuff that they dish on those presidents. Mm. <laughs> so. I kind of changed directions, and um, I think I started my very first entrepreneurial path when I was about seven or eight years old, um, painting rocks and making candles and selling them to the neighbors. So you always knew that you wanted to own your own business. And by the way, there's still that opportunity to be the first female president, so you, know, you might consider <laughs> changing your mind, but I totally get about the politics. Yeah. It's a little scary. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, that door has definitely been closed and locked for me. (laughs) And I threw away the key a long time ago. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So did you ever have a corporate job? Or did you just jump right into being your own boss? No, I, um, I did work for, well, I got my degree in psychology, uh, and right out of that degree, I kind of thought, well, um, you know, I'm going to go into working clinical stuff, and so I kind of did that for a little while, realized that, wow, they're not paid much money at all, and so then I tried to get a regular kind of corporate job, corporate meaning I think we had about 100 employees, so really more small business than massive corporate kind of thing. And it just wasn't me. I just, I, I, yeah, I didn't jive with other people 
constantly telling me how to run my, what I, cause I've always looked at whatever role I was in, that was my business, you know? So, um, you know, even as an employee, I looked at what I did as I need to do the best possible job here that I can do. And I had too many uh, handcuffs. Plus I had a lot of health issues that kind of held me back from growing in, um, in any sort of job. I mean, I had a, a number of bosses that kind of said, we'd love to promote you, but you take too much time off because of migraines. And so we can't really have somebody in a manager position that's constantly taking time off work. And I'm like, well, th this is, this is not going to go anywhere for me. I just need to go out on my own and create my own story. Mm. So once you decided that, okay, this is just not going to work for me. Did you know what you wanted to do? Did you think about, you know, you said you have a psychology degree. Did you think about sort of hanging out your own shingle or what did you think was the right path for you? Yeah. And early on, this was, uh, this was the mid to late nineties and the coaching world was still not that hot of a topic. I mean, it was still, there were some people that were coaching at that point in time, but it wasn't a big thing and it wasn't yet on my radar. Um, and what I realized was that I, as a, with that degree in psychology, I didn't really want to work with people. I have too much of an empathic side to me. So working with people that have depression or bipolar or anxiety, that stuff weighs on me. And I'm like, I, I can't do that. I needed to, I needed to be around people that could lift me up and not weight me down. So going down a, a path of working with individuals that frequently saw psychologists was not something that I could really do. Uh, and so I kind of toyed around with the whole multi-level marketing world for a while, got into that, did a few different multi-level marketing companies, had some mild success with most of those, but also still realized in that path that I still had my hands cuffed as far as what kind of a, what I could do with the business to grow it. And I had so many ideas. I'm like, well, I want to do this and I want to do that. And they kept saying, yeah, you can't do that. You can't do that. And I'm like, wait. <laughs> this is this is not working for me. So so even going that journey wasn't working for me. Uh, and it was during that course, kind of doing the MLM thing, that I actually started coaching people. I started working with uh, with my downline teams and helping them to to be better at what they were doing and going on that personal. And I was still doing it my own personal development journey. And so that's when I really started to shift. And I actually had a coach at one point in time say, why don't you become a coach? And I'm like, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. And the more and more I thought about it, I'm like, this is really, this is what I want to do. I want to really help people get better. Like not just go from, below average to average, but go from average to excelling and really achieve more in their lives. Uh, and so that's probably, I don't know, probably around 2000 to 2003-ish, somewhere in that range. That's when I really started going down the coaching journey and becoming more of a coach and a speaker and, um, and, and getting into and using that side of my brilliance. Did you have a specific focus for your coaching or was it just kind of life coaching? 
Yeah, I started out as just a general life coach. I kind of called myself the whole whole mind, whole body coach because uh, because I was coming from the naturopathic world, doing the the MLM stuff. So I had all the supplements, and you know, I had studied all the stuff on being better physically and mentally. So I was like, well, I'm just taking the whole picture. I'm going to be the whole body coach, and so it's the mind, it's the health, it's the physical, it's the whole bit. Uh, and I, I don't know, I just wasn't, um, I wasn't great at attracting clients in that realm. And I don't know if it was to this day, I don't know whether it was the messaging. I don't know if it was that the industry wasn't there yet. Uh, the people weren't really receptive yet. I don't know what it was, but I struggled with it for a long time. Uh, and eventually began to kind of hone in and realize what I'm really good at teaching is helping people to be more productive. And so that's when I began to shift my focus and really identify myself as the productivity expert uh, and helping people think different about their time and how they use their time and systems and that kind of thing. Yeah, back in the early days of the coaching industry, there was kind of a tension between psychology and um, coaching. And there was some misunderstandings about what coaches would really do with people. Um, did you experience any of that when you decided to go that down that road? Sure. Um, there was a lot of that. And then even, you know, because I, the, the interesting thing is people would ask me all the time, are you certified as a coach? And my answer had to be, no, I'm not, I don't actually have a piece of paper that says that I'm a life coach. I never went through any of those certification programs. Um, but the interesting thing is the only people that ever asked me that were other coaches or psychologists <laughs> and therapists. The clients never asked me that. Um, they were good with the fact that I had a, a degree in psychology and felt like that qualified me to go down that realm uh, and that I knew at least what I was talking about. And I got results for them. That's what really mattered to them. But the one issue that I did find was that a lot of the incoming clients would ask, well, does my insurance cover this? Because they didn't, they didn't, the clients didn't know the difference between uh, a therapist, which is covered by a lot of insurance companies and a life coach, which is not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, they were still kind of struggling with, is this a, um, a want or is this really a need? And if it's just a want, can I afford to pay for it right now? Yeah, that's interesting that the customers or clients were also confused because I think that's what the psychology profession was concerned about, right? That coaches would be practicing therapy without a license. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they took a while, I think, for the, the industry and the, the population as a whole to really understand what those differences were and, and how each of them had their own role to play. So you find your niche, you're the productivity expert, things are rolling right along, life is good, and then tragedy strikes. Tell me what happened. Yeah, and this is still, I mean, I still get chills talking about it. It's five years, five, almost five and a half years later now, um, and I still get chills. I still have a hard time talking about it, um, but it was... July 4th of 2013. And uh, my husband and I had been together since, um, since we had two boys. Um, I had a son and he had a son. They were three months apart. 
and at this time, our boys were uh, 17 and 18 years old. So they're right in the middle of their birthdays. Um, and July 4th of that year, my, my husband and I went to bed. It was probably 11 o'clock, went to bed. We didn't stay up for too many of the fireworks. Uh, our kids were out doing their own fireworks thing. His, um, his son lived with his mom. My son still lived with us. Um, but we had raised them since they were four. So essentially they were both our sons, but, um, about 12 o'clock midnight, the phone started ringing and we both run a business out of our home. And, um, usually those calls are people that are just calling to get the voicemail. So I let it go to voicemail and then it rang again. And I let that one go to voicemail and it rang again. And this time I was bound and determined to get up and give the person on the other end of the line a piece of my mind because they were interrupting my sleep. And I got on the phone and it was my husband's ex-wife. And she said, I need to talk to Jeff. So I said, okay, I handed her the phone, started walking into the bathroom. And I can remember minute by minute, the details of this. And I watched my husband say hello and slump to the floor. Hmm. And I, I said, what's going on? And I picked up the phone. I still didn't know what was going on. I'm thinking, okay, you know, our son got into some trouble, maybe he got into a car accident, something like that. No big deal, whatever. And I pick up the phone and that's when I learned that not only had he been in a car accident, he had been in a head-on car accident and he was killed almost instantly. Oh. Um, and that, uh, that moment has has a major effect on anybody's life. Uh, I mean, you know, people tell me all the time, you know, I can't imagine going through that. You know, um, I certainly could have never imagined it um, before living through it. Um, but one of the things that I have said for years, um, and I can remember first telling this to a friend of mine whose son was a heroin addict. Um, I believe that's the first time that I'd ever used this phrase to him. I said, you know, sometimes the best gifts come wrapped in the ugliest paper, mm. but you have to be willing to unwrap the paper and look at the gift that's inside. Um, if you're not willing to look at the gift, then the gift was given in vain. Um, and so having said that and having reflected on that, I began to really look at what is this supposed to mean? Because there has to be some more significant meaning. I can't just let this experience go. And, and, and I don't believe that our son would have wanted that. I, I believe that he had, um, that, that he would have wanted something better and brighter and, and amazing to come from that experience. And we don't always know what that is, but I went on a, my own personal kind of journey to figure out what that was supposed to look like for me. Mm. Well, I am so sorry for your loss. I, I Echoing what you said, people say, I, I can't imagine, and my heart breaks for your family. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
thank you. Um, there, I'm fortunate that I've had many gifts come, come from it. Um, some significant, some just as simple as being able to reach out to other people who have lost a child and, and, and not say, I, I know what you're going through, but just be there as a shoulder because there's things that, that I never would have thought about. I mean, the, the weirdest random thoughts that you have after that kind of a loss. Um, and I've talked to people who have had those kind of losses since then. And, and that's, you know, it's the same for them. You know, it's just a weird memory or a weird thought that gets triggered at random times. And when you least expect it, and it's, it's, it's an experience I could never relate to anything that I'd ever gone through before. Hopefully never, ever have to go through again. Um, but one of those gifts that I received from that is being able to share those experiences with others so that they know what to expect. So how long did it take for you to reach this, um, uh, this attitude of it's, there are gifts? to be, to be had from this. How did you process your grief in the, in the weeks and months afterward? Um, you know, the first few, the first week obviously was wrapped up with the services and dealing with family and managing, um, that those heaviest moments. And I can remember the, the coming home from the service and thinking, now everybody else's life is going to go on and I'm still stuck. Mm. Um, and, and that was a hard moment for me. And that's when I really began to, and I had people saying, you know, oh my gosh, you're such a positive person. If anybody can come out of this, you can. And of course, in those moments, that's not what you want to hear um, by any means. Um, but I, I kept hearing that ringing in my head reminding me that yes I have it in me to overcome this and you know I always hate the choice of words that we have sometimes in the English language because overcome is not the right word but um but really be able to open up the gift and see what's there um and and so I really began to look at that and in and in those moments of quiet reflection uh you know whether it was being home alone, cooking dinner or exercising, or just whenever normally you're kind of quietly reflecting on different thoughts and ideas. I continued to hear that, that little voice in my head saying, there's a gift here. You have to, you have to find the gift. Um, and it was about three months later, three months after it happened, I was driving down the road. Um, I live in a pretty rural neighborhood, so there wasn't a lot of traffic, just kind of reflecting on, on nature and the houses and the horses and all of the animals, thinking about the experience. And, and one of the things that I realized in that moment was, um, because I was very deliberate with the way that I had spent my time with my kids, I didn't have any moments of regret. I didn't have the well, if I would have done this, well, I should have done this. I could have done that. Um, I didn't have any of those because I knew that when he had a little league game, I was fully present for those little league games. And if he had a little league practice and I had a conversation with him 
he knew that I might be working during practice, but that I was going to be fully present for the games. I was home for the boys when they came home from school to get their homework done. I was there for them when they needed somebody to have a conversation with. But I also deliberately chose times where I could say, hey, my door's closed. That means I'm getting work done unless you absolutely positively need me because somebody's bleeding or the house is burning down. This is my time to focus on business. I was very deliberate with my time. And so that was a a monumental realization for me that I could move past this because I wasn't going to hold on to any regret about the way that I had raised him and parented him when I had him in my life. And there were some beautiful moments being able to do that. Obviously, as any parent, not all of the moments were shining and beautiful, but I could get to a place where I could look at all of the moments as a gift and not just dwell on on what I did wrong. That is a gift to have no regrets. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people who are listening who are thinking, huh, (laughs) I kind of do have regrets. So you didn't really need to make any different choices based on this. Often, you know, when, when a tragedy like this strikes, people start to rethink, right? And, and often we do have regrets. And so we start to think about how can I change what I'm doing now so that I don't have regrets moving forward? Did this change your approach to your life or your business at all? Uh, yeah, it really did. And the, the, the shift was was more in the legacy and in my looking at this experience and saying, I want to do more in his honor, in his memory than I have done for up until this point. Not that I regret what I had done, but if I can give back in some way that honors and respects who he was and the life that I had because of who he was, then then that's where I can really have that beautiful gift and continue to thrive despite the situation. Um, you know, because a lot of times we kind of get stuck in this this um, this grief cycle and it keeps us weighted down, thinking that you know. It, it's wrong. It shouldn't have happened. And, you know, I mean, we could, we could, again, what it could have should have ourselves to death all day long and think that, you know, I'm going to be in agony for the rest of my life because if I'm not, then that means his, his death was, was okay for some reason. And that's, that's not the story I was telling myself. The story I was telling myself is that his death has meaning and I need to use that meaning to give back to others in some other way. And that's what really empowered me to to look at how many people I could serve at any one time and help them to have no more woulda, coulda, shouldas. Mm. Before we move on to talk about your business, do you wanna tell me a little bit about who he was? (laughs) He was, he was, he was a lot like me in many respects. And I think um, because of that, we, we tended to butt heads a lot. Um, we were both very stubborn individuals. And 
and he was the reason that I often said um, the the best leaders are the hardest children to raise. Um, he challenged everything and raising him as a parent, that was very, very difficult to do. And yet at the same time, I was able to look at that and say, gosh, this kid's going to make one hell of a leader someday. <laughs> mm. um, and I was aware of that despite those challenges at the time, but he, he was outgoing. He was social. He knew how to have a conversation. Um, he, he was just, um, I refer to him often as my little lost boy um, and the whole Peter Pan because he had his tribe of kids that he, he wanted to be the grown up, but yet he didn't want to lose his childhood. And, and so I really looked at him as, as my little Peter Pan, my little lost boy um, because he struggled between those two worlds uh, but yet, uh, I could go on. <laughs> he, he was, he was, a, he was an amazing and challenging and brilliant and frustrating individual all wrapped into one bowl. Well, I know that through your leadership, you will continue to honor his memory. Most definitely. He is, um, he touches everything that we do, um, in a, in a, beautiful and brilliant way. Ah, sorry. <laughs> Get yeah, the tissue. Sorry, I didn't mean to make you cry, but No, no. That's thank okay. you for sharing I, that. Actually, um one of the gifts that I've learned is how to be vulnerable. Um the vulnerability is something that I was never natural at. Um never very good at being vulnerable, and so this experience has allowed me to learn how to be much more vulnerable and embrace that side of who I am uh, as not shameful, um, but it's, I can remember thinking back when I was going through this and thinking, you know, before this experience, I had to be the perfectly presentable, I've got the best outfit on. I've got the beautiful heels on. I'm always talking exactly what I, you know, professional in every single way. And coming out of this experience, I remember attending networking events and breaking down in tears at just something random somebody would say and thinking to myself, I could get up and walk out now. So I'm not making anybody uncomfortable or I could just stay here and absorb what I need to absorb and, and learn how to be okay with that. And it was very difficult at first, um, but I did learn how to do that. And what I realized was opening up that, that side of me that can be vulnerable also allowed more people into my life. Um, you know, people that often felt that I was not approachable before suddenly felt like it was okay to approach me because I was just like them. I wasn't like setting myself on this pedestal that nobody could reach. Um, and, and it's something that I did to myself because I thought that's what I had to do. 
Uh, but this experience helped me to understand that I don't have to be up on this pedestal. In fact, I, it's far more effective for me to get off the pedestal and down in the weeds with everybody else and help them to understand that I'm just like them. So I'm all about being 100% authentic now. Uh, and, and I never could have claimed that before. Mm, yet another gift. Many, many gifts, <laughs> for sure. So you are known as a productivity expert. What does that mean? Um, what it means, productivity is this concept that, um, depending on who you ask, it has many different definitions. Uh, and I have learned that not by natural innate ability, but by learned talent, I'm very good at being productive, productive, can't even say it now. Um, but the thing that I learned that really embraced that was that productivity is not just a tool or a system. Uh, that's one part of the recipe, but in order to have a complete recipe, you also have to have habits and you have to have mindset. And so I really um, embraced the fact that I could learn and impart to others how to be more productive, not just from providing them with a, the right set of tools, but also helping them to understand how to think differently about the way that they use their time. What is a virtual team and how do I know if I need one? Yeah, a virtual team. So the the wonderful digital world that we have today allows us to work with brilliant minds all over the world. And uh, rather than once upon a time, we had to hire somebody that was going to be full-time on staff or even part-time, but they were going to come into our location, whether our house or an office, a small business, whatever. They were going to come in, they were going to sit at a desk, and they were going to work all day long. A virtual team means that we can all work from remote locations. So rather than having to hire somebody as a full-time employee or even a part-time employee, we can use somebody that's, that's what's called a 1099 contractor. They are, um, they're, it's a, a different designation, um, but we're not having to pay benefits. We're not having to pay full-time salaries. We're not having to give them vacation and all those kind of things that cost a lot of money when we hire regular employees. And yet we get them for just a few hours at a time so that we can hire the most brilliant minds to do the tasks that we need to have done based on a budget and a scope of time that we can manage instead of um, having to commit to a large chunk of outflow of income. Your company not only does virtual services, but online business management. What's mm -hmm. the difference? Yeah, great question. Um, virtual, so there's two distinctions. There's virtual assistants. Uh, that's kind of the lower level admin type things. Those are going to be like data entry, uh, managing your calendar, um, doing some social media, doing minor tasks here and there that you are basically designating to somebody and saying, here, this is the, the list of tasks I need you to do. Go complete those tasks. An online business manager takes things to the next level and is actually doing more of the management 
of the team for you. So they might be coordinating, they might be doing the hiring and the recruiting of the, of the virtual assistants. They might be coordinating more projects, um, helping you to think about, well, if you need, so if you go to a virtual assistant and say, I need to grow my email list, they're going to say, great, what do you want me to do? If you go to an online business manager and say, I need to grow my email list, they're going to say, great, here's what you need to do. Uh, and then the online business manager is going to manage that process for you. That makes it very understandable. I like that. One says, what do you want me to do? The other says, here's what you need to do. Right. Very important. Yeah. Can you give our listeners some tips, maybe your top three or five on productivity? Yeah, it's uh, the, the number one thing. So the first thing I say is you, you first things you need to focus on is you're sleeping, you're eating, and you're exercise. I know it's not fun or fancy, but when you can get a great night's sleep, and that doesn't necessarily mean eight or nine hours, it just mean, means um, the right amount of sleep for you. Um, but when you can get a very effective night's sleep, when you can eat a clean and healthy diet, and when you get out and exercise regularly, you are phenomenally more productive than when those things are not managed. Uh, and it's just, a, it's a focus thing. It's an energy level thing. And those things are going to dramatically increase your productivity. The, the next tip that I usually give is to focus on being fully present. We get so, it's so overwhelming to be service-based solopreneurs or solopreneurs or entrepreneurs, whatever you want to call yourself. It's overwhelming because we have a million different things going on. And the easiest thing to do is get wrapped up in trying to manage all of them at once. And so your brain is kind of going and going and going. If you can take the time to step back and that's my dog sneezing in the background. Oh, bless you. <laughs> um, if you can take the moment to step back and focus and just be fully present on the task that you're doing right now, uh, then you're going to be much more effective in completing that task quickly and to a higher level of quality than if you're distracted by a million different things. Yeah, multitasking. I have heard that even though we think we can multitask, that in fact, we cannot. Correct. Yeah. And multitasking. So there's the there's two different things that people think of as multitasking. Um, multitasking, we have the ability if something is an innate habit that we already have, we can do that along with something else. So chewing gum and walking down the street, totally doable because both of those are habits that are easy to do. Um, now walking down the street and texting on our phone that might not be something that we can do because we're having to concentrate too much on two different things at the same time. Uh, so when we think about multitasking, if it's something that you can do without having to actually use brain processing power, you can do it together with something else. But if it's like checking email and writing a blog post at the same time, you can't do that because your brain is constantly having to switch and it takes time to refocus your attention and your energy onto what it was. So you're in the middle of a sentence and then you see the, the, the alert come up to check your email. So you go check your email. Then you come back to writing the blog post. 
where were you? Mm. You don't remember exactly what that train of thought was. So it takes time to get back engaged in that process. And while it might seem like just a matter of seconds, maybe 30 to 60 seconds to do that, when you add it up over time, it becomes a significant chunk of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were studies that were done. Um, so like driving and listening to the radio are two things that don't really take a lot of different types of brain power, right? So the driving is kind of a learned behavior that you can do kind of on autopilot. Listening to the radio doesn't take a lot of actual thought. But when people talked on the phone, even if it was hands-free, you know, their attention, like they in this study, they, they showed certain things along the road and people would miss like the clown on the unicycle juggling on the sidewalk, right? Because they, their brain couldn't talk on the phone and notice these things at the same time. It's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the reason that they can listen to the radio is because they've heard what's on the radio so many times that it's just, it just becomes kind of white noise essentially. So you can focus your brain on the road when you need to, and then you kind of catch clips of the radio and it, as you, and, and you're not missing anything, but when you're having that conversation or when you're listening to a podcast or something that requires you to actually concentrate on what's going on, then you're no longer concentrating on the road. Mm-hmm. So you wrote a best-selling book called Positivity on Purpose, Intentionally Create More Abundance, Wealth, and Happiness. Did you write this before or after you lost your son? I actually wrote it uh, two years before um, the loss of my son. And uh, the, many of the, the things that I wrote about in the book somehow ended up preparing me for that loss. It was not, mm-hmm. obviously we can't, we can't um, know that that's going to happen, but um, I, I call it a bathroom reader. I actually have a copy here. Um, I call it a bathroom reader because the, the chapters are two or three or four pages. They're really short. You can just kind of, you know, when you go into the bathroom and you're like, Hey, I just need something to read. Um, <laughs> so you can get through a whole chunk of it uh, in a, in a sitting or two. And but each chapter is a standalone chapter, so you don't need to re- read it in a specific order. You can kind of flip to any one chapter and say, what's that chapter about? Um, you know, I've got one in here that's positive thinking is a journey, enjoy the ride. And so it's all about how to enjoy the, the, the journey and not just look for the destination. Um, we get so wrapped up in trying to get to the destination that we miss the fun of getting there. Um, so yeah, so each chapter is just really super short, uh, you know, really easy to digest and a great opportunity, a great little um, lesson on how to be a more positive person. Uh, I really enjoyed writing it. It was kind of my, one of my, it was the very first bucket list item I ever had since I was in the sixth grade and I had an amazing, um, creative writing teacher that totally inspired me to write a book someday. And, uh, and so finally in 2011, I birthed my book <laughs> for anybody that's written a book. They know that it is a birthing for sure. <laughs> well, congratulations. And thank you for sharing that little bit of wisdom. I agree that it is really about the journey because our destinations can change over time. And so if you're not kind of on the lookout 
on the journey, you might miss those signposts. Absolutely. Yeah. And you get so wrapped up in, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, and after I wrote the book, um, a couple of years ago, uh, I drove to New York, uh, Long Island, New York to pick up a truck that my husband had purchased used and I was going to drive it back across country. And I actually took all of the um, state routes instead of the interstates so that I could see all of the kitschy little roadside attractions. And if, if I was focused on the destination of getting the truck back to, to my home, I would have missed all that stuff. I would have just jumped on the interstate and tried to get here as quickly as possible. But, you know, I got to see Laura Ingalls Wilder's where she wrote the, the um, Little House on the Prairie books. I got to see the, the world's largest rocking chair and, <laughs> you know, just silly random things. And I really loved that journey. And it was such a great metaphor for life. But did you see the largest ball of twine? I missed that one. I did. And I'm so <laughs> bummed. And I missed um, the, in Texas, they have, I think it's in Texas, they have all the Cadillacs like stood up and I ended up having to take a detour and I didn't get to see that. So there's a few things I'm like, dang it, I got to go out and do that again because it's huh? such a fun journey. More road trips. That's right. For sure. So we're at that point in the program where I have to ask you, what is one book or resource besides your own that changed your life that you would recommend to people? You know, there's so many um, that, and I looked at that question. I'm like, gosh, that's going to be a hard one. Um, at various points in my life, there have been various books that have really significantly affected um, my course. And I have to say that one of the most recent ones is, um, and it's probably the book that if I had to write about productivity, this is the book I would have written. Uh, it's called Productivity on Purpose. Coincidentally, mine is called Positivity on Purpose. This book is called Productivity on Purpose. And uh, it's by Rory Vaden. And it really is just a brilliantly written book on how to be a more productive person. Nicole, how do you personally define success for yourself? What does your authentic first-class life look like? Yeah, for me, success is not, um, it's not a paycheck. It's not a lifestyle. Um, for a long time, if I'm being totally authentic and vulnerable, for a long time, I hung success on being the person that was up on stage in front of rooms full of massive amounts of people and having that um, that following. That's how I defined success for a long time. More recently in my life, success is, is more internal. It's, it's looking at every day and saying, was I the best that I could be today? And how can I improve on what I did yesterday? Uh, it's the ongoing process. It's that journey of, of, you know, they say, if you're not, if you're not growing, you're dying. And, and I, I don't want to ever get to that place in my life where I'm not constantly learning something new. So that's what success is to me. It's really just being, um, better today in some way than I was yesterday. Mm. I heard someone just recently make the analogy to a phone that same, like it's your same uh, shell, but you should always be upgrading your operating system. I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it. 
And the shell does get older as we get older, doesn't it? It does indeed. <laughs> as we were talking about glasses and progressives earlier. <laughs> yes, that definitely gets older. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about you and your work, how can they do that? Yeah, so the best place to reach me uh, is my website, virtual18.com. You can go there. You can get all my pricing. You can learn all about um, the virtual services. If you go to virtual18.com backslash ultimate guide, uh, you'll actually be able to download my uh, ultimate guide to delegating, which helps people learn more about how to actually delegate so that you can go and spend more time doing what matters most. Uh, and I'm all over social, uh, social media, Nicole Bandis. Uh, there is one other Nicole Bandis that I found, but she's like a teenager, so she doesn't count. <laughs> um, but in the whole world, it's a very unique name. So uh, yeah, you can find me pretty much anywhere on social media. I'm on almost all of the channels as Nicole Bandis. What's next for Nicole Bandis? What's next? I have big ambitions to grow this uh, agency to a larger scale so that I can really help more people. Uh, it's, it's never been, I, I don't play small. It's just not in my vocabulary. So, but, um, but it's all about managing that growth so that I still get to have and maintain the lifestyle that I love. I don't want to grow big and be tied to this business that is just massive. I want to grow big and have a massive business that I'm not tied to. Well, Nicole Bandis, the productivity expert, thanks so much for sharing your journey with me today and being so vulnerable. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me on the show. First Class Life, Redefining Success with your host, Kate Fessler. We'll be right back. Back to the show. First Class Life, Redefining Success with your host, Kate Fessler. Not having children myself, it's beyond my imagination how heartbreaking it would be to lose a child, especially in such a sudden and horrific way. Nicole is an amazing example that life must go on, and we honor the memories of those we've lost by living our lives in the best way we can. I hope that you haven't experienced this and never will. But having a strong foundation like Nicole does can help you weather any circumstance in your life. It brings to mind the question that's often asked, if you found out tomorrow you had six months to live, or if you suddenly had your world shattered by an unforeseen tragedy, would you continue doing what you're doing? Please don't wait. Let people know you love them. Take steps toward the life you want. Don't just survive, thrive. And of course, if you're in need of a productivity expert who won't let you down, get in touch with Nicole. I hope you'll join me next week when my guest will be the amazing Dr. Carol Soloway. Carol has redefined her new career numerous times, evolving from English teacher to chiropractor to qualified medical examiner and now best-selling novelist. Tune in to hear her inspiration for her first book, Sex Happens, and get the scoop on her new book, Gracie's Gone, being released next week. Until then, cheers to your authentic first-class life. I'm Kate Fessler. Thanks for listening to First Class Life, Redefining Success. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of First Class Life, Redefining Success with Kate Fessler. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And for more great content and to stay up to date, visit FirstClassLifeSolutions.com on Twitter at Kate Fessler and on Facebook at First Class Life Solutions. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN Podcast hosts at EWNPodcastNetwork.com.